Hi friends, it's Andrea here with The Culture Journalist. So over the holidays, I got a text from my co-host Emily about pizza. Specifically, she wanted to know if I'd heard of an interestingly named restaurant she found on the delivery app DoorDash called, wait for it, Fucking Good Pizza. As it turns out, I had, but that wasn't the only one she found. In fact, there's a whole slate of these highly memeable eatery names out there, like Send Nudes, short for noodles, WTF is a quesarito, Bitch Don't Grill My Cheese. The thing is, these actually aren't real restaurants per se. They're part of a new phenomenon called virtual restaurant brands, or online restaurant concepts that sell food for delivery only sometimes out of something called a ghost kitchen or a shared kitchen space, and as Emily came to learn, increasingly out of brick and mortar restaurants throughout the United States and even across the world. For Emily, that discovery on DoorDash ended up taking her on a journey into how big tech and social media are encroaching on the restaurant world and changing how producers and consumers alike consume and interact with food. She just wrote about it in a fantastic deep dive for Vice called The Mysterious Case of the Fucking Good Pizza. A quest to find the origin of a pizza place led me down a rabbit hole of clickbait restaurants, with Uber co-founder Travis Kalanick's new company at the end. Hey, Emily. Hey, Andrea. Thanks for that suspenseful introduction. So tell us a little bit more about how this all got started and what sucked you in. So a couple days before Christmas last year, I was on DoorDash kind of looking for something to eat for dinner because I was racing to finish up work and get everything done before the holidays and I didn't have time to cook. And a promotion pops up on my screen for this restaurant called Fucking Good Pizza. There were actually a couple of others that popped up around the same time that had similarly weird names. One was called OMG BBQ LOL, like a barbecue restaurant. And another was called Pimp My Pasta, which was like a build your own pasta concept. And they were all newly added on DoorDash. And I was like, hmm, this is kind of weird. They all had these very colorful kind of zillennial looking images that felt kind of like Instagram ads or speaking with that vocabulary. So I texted a friend where I live in North Carolina being like, hey, uh, have you heard of this place? And she was like, I've never heard of this place. I'm not sure what's there. I also texted you, Andrea. You, I think, had seen fucking good pizza before, but you didn't really know what it was. But the really weird thing was that I couldn't find like a website for fucking good pizza or any of these other brands online. And then I just started Googling the names of these places. They appeared to be in all of these different cities. At first, I think I saw it in Washington, D.C. And then I was like, oh, wait, there's another one in L.A. And there's another one in Tempe, Arizona. And I even found, I think, for Pimp My Pasta, as far as... Australia, Paris, the United Arab Emirates. And so I was like, how is this everywhere? And yet I can't figure out what it is. And it doesn't even really seem like it exists. So that's how it got started. And I did a lot of sleuthing and interviewing and finally figured it out. So a lot of people are talking about ghost kitchens these days, but your story is more about virtual brands, which are connected, but not the same thing. Can you explain the difference? 
Yeah, so a ghost kitchen is a shared kitchen space. It's not necessarily a new idea, but it's becoming more popular and I think is something that people are investing in more. Maybe a, an industrial building that is broken up into these kind of micro kitchens and you move in and you can prepare food in them for delivery only if you're a restaurateur. You don't have a storefront and you're just making food for orders that are coming in online. Virtual brand is a restaurant concept, a menu with photos, a name, a logo, etc. that also isn't really connected necessarily to a brick and mortar location. I guess even if you're, you know, a brick and mortar restaurant, you can be like, I make wings, so I'm going to like create a separate menu on delivery sites that highlight wings, but it exists really only online. You can't go usually to the place to get that specific menu. Got it. Got it. And so why would restaurant owners want to engage with something like this, like have a virtual brand in the first place? One explanation, I think, from my reporting is that, you know, restaurants are really feeling the pinch right now during the pandemic. There's less dine-in traffic. And so it's a way to carve out what is called an incremental revenue stream, where in addition to your core business, you are branching out to cook food for a different menu or a menu that is based on your original menu, but presented in a different way to get some more money coming in the door. Also, delivery sites are competitive marketplaces where there's a lot of different listings kind of fighting for attention. And if you're only selling food for your core brand, you will get you know, one space on a delivery site like DoorDash, Seamless, Grubhub, etc. But if you're selling food through online storefronts, that's double the chances that somebody is going to see one of your menus and buy something from you. And especially, you know, in the case of the cluster of virtual brands that I reported on in the story, some of these restaurants are actually operating four, five, ten of these at once. And that really expands your online footprint. So then through your reporting, you found that Uber co-founder and former CEO Travis Kalanick actually has a role in all of this. So where does he fit in? Basically, I did a lot of research finding places where brands like fucking Good Pizza and OMG BBQ LOL were being sold. And my research kept leading me back to this building in Los Angeles. The address is 1842 West Washington Boulevard. And I noticed a higher than usual number of these brands tracing back to that space and found out through additional research that that was the address of a large ghost kitchen operated by this company called Cloud Kitchens, which is the new venture of Travis Kalanick. A couple of years ago, put a bunch of his own money into purchasing a controlling interest in the company. They also have a big investment of $400 million from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. They're a ghost kitchen company, 
but they're also a real estate company and they're buying up buildings across the United States, also abroad, and repurposing them as ghost kitchens of this kind. They operate under the brand name Cloud Kitchens, though the parent company is called City Storage Systems. And through additional research, I found out that that company has been developing its own virtual brands and that they actually had an entire sister operation called Future Foods that was dedicated to that idea. So I finally found out that they were from this company called Future Foods, which is registered as a separate LLC and spoke to restaurants about their experiences with them. Wow. And and so what was their experience? I mean, a lot of the people that I spoke to were fairly pleased with it so far. They had, in many cases, been approached by the company at a time when they were looking for ways to, as I said, carve out new streams of incremental revenue and get more orders coming in. And the results were pretty impressive. Like a couple of people said they didn't have to lay off any of their staff during the pandemic as a result of these brands. Another person in Chicago said that cooking for these brands along with government support had basically rescued their restaurants from closure. So there were some really good short-term results, I'd say. So what are the possible downsides of this? Why, why did the people you spoke with think that maybe it was also worrying? Basically, there's kind of a possible vulnerability that running these brands could open up, which is that it's not really a brand in the conventional sense. I call it a skin, where the way the f- Future Foods works is that, you know, let's say you are a pizzeria they would show you some pizza-centered concepts, or if you also sell wings, some wing-centered concepts, and then you just start cooking for them, but you're mostly cooking to the picture and the list of ingredients. They don't actually have like product specifications, cooking specifications, packaging specifications. So there's really a range of quality, and it really depends on the restaurant that happens to be cooking for you. So the vulnerability is that Partly, I think, because of these names, which seem to just beg to be written about on Twitter or joked about, people would order from one of these brands. And then especially because there are not really specific quality control measures that seem to be in place, they would receive something that didn't really look like the picture you know, was just basically how a restaurant might normally cook a pizza and not this sort of glamorous, like slightly trendy, upwardly mobile product that seems to be being advertised. And so there's online snark as like part of this phenomenon, I'd say. And, you know, one restaurant I spoke to felt that because of that happening with some other restaurants that maybe didn't cook food that was appetizing, people would think that because he was operating under multiple aliases, there was something dishonest going on. So specifically, a customer who had ordered from another restaurant in our town that was running these virtual brands received something that they didn't like. And then they wrote a post on Reddit sort of associating 
this other restaurant with this phenomenon of people doing something that seems suspect in a way. Another thing was I spoke to this person named Matt Newberg, who runs this media startup called Hungry, which is really at the forefront of talking about trends in technology and food. And he's been studying virtual brands, cloud kitchens, companies like it for years. And his biggest concern was actually about Otter, the software that restaurants are using when they sign up for this because he feels that software like this kind of gives data on customer behavior in a city directly to future foods. And his worry was that that kind of data, which a company normally wouldn't get unless they're, you know, DoorDash, Uber Eats, Grubhub, who are directly catching most of these orders that are coming in, they could use that data to you know, make decisions about what they'll be running in their own ghost kitchen space when they open one up in the area, and that that could possibly be used to compete with the same restaurants that are adopting these virtual brands at a time when they're already pretty vulnerable. Right. Wow. That is a lot to think about. A lot of a lot of implications here, good and bad. Yeah, it's super complicated. And I, and I do want to point out that Future Foods, Cloud Kitchens, they're not the only players in the space. There are a number of ghost kitchen companies, some also with like major investors and millions and millions of dollars also getting their foot in the door. And there's also a lot of other virtual brand options, some of which are very, very different, may have completely different kind of approach to the customer relationship, the restaurant relationship and different kinds of quality specifications. Yeah, didn't you trace one back to Unilever, the soap company? Yeah, um, I, yeah. through this, I realized that my partner ordered some pints of ice cream. We found this listing called the Ice Cream Shop online, which is like, I didn't know I could buy just pints of ice cream like you might buy at the supermarket on a delivery site. But we had seen it one night when we wanted like a late night dessert and ordered from it. And it turned out that that was a virtual brand from Unilever. Yeah. And so all of this brings us then to the next half of our show. Yeah. In my reporting, I actually came across a paper that delves into a lot of this by the writer and design professor Emma Kemp for the research studio Bakersfield. It's called Ghost Ops, Counterfeit Kitchens in the Pandemic Age. And it was a really beautiful piece of writing. And it was crazy to see someone who went on kind of a similar journey to the one I did, but from Los Angeles. Here's a quote that I quoted in the piece. In the 2020 ghost kitchen economy, design is the product. The specifics of a menu, the integrity of the cuisine, both ultimately are of little concern. The branding signals only to itself, to a mood, an energy, a current, an idea of an experience. So this passage and many others in her piece struck me because she really helps set these brands with colorful photos and internet-y names in the context of where graphic design and visual culture more broadly are going. 
And she also talked a lot about the ways in which they seem to resonate with the changing landscape of Los Angeles, which is the epicenter for a lot of these new developments in food. And so we decided to bring her on today so she and Emily can discuss the dual phenomenon of virtual brands and ghost kitchens. We'll be right back with just that after this break. Hey guys, so we are here with Emma Kemp to dive a little bit deeper into the phenomenon of ghost kitchens and cloud kitchens. She is an artist and writer and professor at Otis College of Art and Design in LA. And we're so happy to have you here. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Hello. Thank you, Emily and Andrea, for having me on today. I'm excited to be here. Can you walk us through the series of events that led you to write this piece? It seems like you, much like Emily, were kind of trying to unravel the mystery as well. Yeah, absolutely. So Bakersfield is a collaboration between myself and a filmmaker named Matthew Altman Vega, and he's also located in LA. So if we rewind a year, sort of beginning of the pandemic, Matt actually, he sort of needed income and he began driving for Caviar and Uber Eats. And one night we were talking about his experience and, and he was kind of freaking out about this place that he just collected an order from that he, you know, believed to be this restaurant called Crispy Rice, sort of on the fringe of Koreatown. And he was immediately kind of suspicious when he turned up at this building at 615 Northwestern Avenue. And it's sort of this empty storefront. There's no signage. There's like a whole bunch of delivery drivers, like all these guys outside, like no one's speaking to each other. Everyone's just kind of like standing around on their phone. He just said it, the whole thing had this kind of just strange vibe and he knew I'd be interested in that. So he picked me up and we actually, we drove back there that same night and kind of snooped around a little bit. And I remembered there's a person working at the kiosk there. I was trying to ask, you know, what this place is and what's happening here. And he was very cagey. He indicated that he like couldn't talk to anyone about it, that his bosses didn't like it when people asked questions. And I enjoy playing the role of the amateur sleuth sometimes. So we, yeah, we just decided, huh, like something interesting is happening here that clearly is trying to remain under the radar. And so we wanted to kind of uncover what was going on. And we began tracking and tracing some of these orders that Matt was picking up and delivering. And the more that we uncovered the more kind of like connections that we were able to piece together um, about these virtual brands that were sort of flooding the delivery apps at that time. I was actually just really stunned, you know, when I first discovered this whole kind of network of moving pieces. And then I was kind of outraged, which is why the Bakersfield report is like 10,000 pages long. And it seems like, Emily, you had a sort of similar entry point. I just thought it was really weird when I discovered the fucking good pizza listing on DoorDash and was like at first like oh haha this is some kind of uh, way of gaming the delivery system algorithm maybe and there are many many different kinds of virtual restaurants and virtual restaurant companies or so-called curators so this is like not uncommon to find a novel brand on your delivery screen but it's just weird to not be able to trace it to anything 
So that was when it felt like a mystery. And I was just like, well, where does this actually come from? I don't understand it. There's just something so unsettling about it. You know, I've ordered from Crispy Rice like a bunch during the pandemic. And it arrives and it's in this like really chic box and it's pink and cute and there's little characters. The food's actually like not that good. Um, But, you know, when I've had like socially distanced things in a friend's backyard, we're all just like, oh, yeah, crispy rice. Perfect for sharing. And it's just you it never crosses your mind. You automatically think you're supporting a local business. And I mean, I literally have the Google street image called up right now for crispy rice in my neighborhood. And it's a, it's literally a picture of dumpsters in a parking lot. <laughs> right. And there's this this funny thing that's been happening as well recently to me is that I get these Yelp notifications, right, which are like, restaurants miss you too. You know, like trying to play up this empathic relationship that you have with your restaurants. You know, and then you sort of realize, like, wait, what am I being coaxed into empathizing with? Like, the, this is like a virtual brand. I don't know even where this place is. Yeah, I feel I feel duped. Here I was thinking I was supporting a business helping give, you know, my friends who are restaurant workers work. And and it's just completely not that. I mean, obviously like there are people making the food and your some workers are getting money from that and that's good, but I I'd much rather be supporting the local businesses that are struggling to keep their storefronts alive during all this and you're just duped. They're duping us. <laughs> well, Emma, can you actually clarify what you found crispy rice to be, or maybe Andrea, you can explain this because I'm on the East Coast and I am not actually familiar with it. Yeah, so crispy rice is essentially this cute and, in my opinion, like very overpriced sushi concept. And it turns out that it's actually a virtual brand created by a company that's called Creating Culinary Communities, which also does umami burger. So it's a subsidiary of the large hospitality firm SBE Entertainment Group. But, you know, it can definitely be hard to find information on these things, especially if you're just looking at a restaurant listing. But Emma, at the time, that connection wasn't readily apparent, right? Yeah, well, so the crispy rice that Matt picked up, we tracked it back to a virtual kitchen that was operating out of 615 Northwestern, which is a kind of nondescript building and we went back and visited that space recently and now the whole front lobby is just filled with sort of lockers and uline shelves and there's like an ipad sort of platform that greets you when you come in and you select your order and you pick up from a lockbox there i haven't seen a, any other kind of physical space belonging to crispy rice um but I again, it's really hard to know because there are these different formations of these brands that play out in different ways across different cities and different locales, right? That was one of the tricky things about kind of tracing and tracking this was that, you know, you're kind of relying on <laughs> on the internet to help you track down these things and you're relying on sort of the sources you can kind of extract information from. But there, it's really hard to find solid you know, evidence of who actually is running this stuff. And I, it led me all the way back to just tons of like LLC filings that I was working through, you know, because that seemed to be the only kind of concrete like paper evidence um, that had people's names attached to them occasionally. Yeah. And it's interesting because the kinds of brands that I found or the ones I was trying to figure out where they came from, they didn't go so far as to have like unique packaging. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But that's interesting, Andrea, that you ordered from them. Emma, I'm wondering also, 
You said you found these brands interesting from a visual culture perspective, design perspective. What elements about them popped out at you? So I teach a class on design fundamentals at Otis, and I I talk often about these basic compositional strategies that underscore like graphic design. And as I was looking through the delivery app interface and was researching what I knew to be these virtual brands, it seemed like the same visual tropes were playing out over and over again in the kind of approach to food photography and to just to the branding assets in general. And it seemed to me that the whole aesthetic is really clearly intended to signal to a sort of young and like very, you know, net friendly audience, which makes sense because, you know, they're on delivery apps. That's where these brands pick up consumers is on an app, right? So to me, it it reminded me of this kind of interface branding of like Squarespace and Instagram advertisements, where there's an extremely kind of controlled and like targeted curation of the visual objects in space. There's this like repetition of shape over and over again, which creates these like eye-catching patterns that, you know, we, we like to look at really kind of contemporary, but constrained pop color palettes. I mean, basically it's the thing that struck me most about it is that it's all extremely replicable. Like it's template graphic design, right? Which is really our experience of like web 2.0 interface design at this point. And then, you know, I was also struck by this, the way that the design aesthetic itself was beginning to shift attention away from the food stuff as a menu item of, of nourishment or enjoyment or pleasure and instead became just one visual element within like a design aesthetic or within a design composition. So it seemed to me to be kind of saying that the photography that was playing out as part of these branding strategies is not primarily concerned with like, showing you like the hamburger in the way that maybe we recognize from the sort of like millennial food photography you know like five ten years ago but that really it was like concerned with creating graphics and so the burger becomes just like one shape element in this overall eye-catching visual I mean it's not confined to the culinary sector but it is interesting I think to begin to see the way that graphic design sort of asserts itself as its own like referential signifier in a way you know it's like almost like you don't really need to know what the product is you just know that the kind of design controls are signaling that you should participate in this so so fascinating yeah and you had this great quote that the branding signals only to itself to a mood and energy a current an idea of an experience and that also sort of lines up with the idea that these individual brands are created to, you know, serve different pockets of demand and maybe fit a moment in your life where you're looking for this specific experience. Like, oh, I have a hangover. Maybe I'll get this. I think you're spot on. And I think creative direction on a lot of the branding for these virtual kitchens references the kind of I don't know, like fashion spaces that we see online that are marketed also to kind of younger people. Like I think about my students often because, I mean, they've grown up, you know, on the net. And so they understand particular types of visuality to be speaking directly to them. When they see these images of the food that looks this particular way of the burger that makes like the cool pattern in bright colors, and they're less concerned about whether that's like a really good burger or whether they know where that meat is coming from or you know anything like that it's like this is for you this is the one you know 
I totally, totally see that. One of the restaurant owners that I spoke with for the piece, he had a lot of experience in marketing and he was saying that he felt that it was designed to tap into this specific demographic. I don't know if he specified college students, but this kind of demographic that wants to always try something new and maybe is interested in deals and sort of like fleeting opportunities to try something different. I, I did notice that the two main like hubs that Cloud Kitchen owns in LA are pretty conveniently located to, you know, like USC, UCLA. I think there's a way that these brands are part of the kind of like, you know, like, I don't know, talking about fashion, like fast fashion identity, and also just kinds of aspirational lifestyles that we all are, <laughs> we're kind of groomed to as piety, right? And you, you think about, I don't know, like the passamento and like dwell and these kinds of things, right? It's like everything looks like a particular way. Like everything is clean and controlled and clear. And you're sold this idea of, of being empowered by making that consumer choice. And yet in this instance, the agency that you have as a consumer is minimized by the fact that you actually have no idea what this place is or where this food is coming from or what you are participating in as a consumer. And so I think that there is a way that it signals to a group of people that are less concerned about knowing the origins of their food. Because there's a whole movement in the food sector right now, which is about understanding the origins of your food right about really becoming aware of the processes and structures and food systems that we engaging and like really taking that conversation seriously and i think that this business model goes against (laughs) that whole type of thinking that just made me think i wonder how much of that potentially relates to sort of a window of opportunity for that within the pandemic and there being this vacuum of the cultural experience and of aesthetic consumerism as we've come to know it. So if there's like a weird sort of almost like itch that's getting scratched when you get, I don't mean to come keep coming back to crispy rice, but it's just like such a perfect example because it comes to you in this cute millennial pink box. We see an uptick in it perhaps because it's maybe filling some kind of like void you know, for that experience at this time when we can't go out and get it in the places that we're used to. I mean, I think this was already in motion before the pandemic, most definitely. I just feel like other (laughs) institutions that we know about, Amazon, for example, right, they've just really managed to move into this space and expand and and exploit our desires and our, our lack of ability to participate in more meaningful ways, maybe, and to monetize that, yeah. I was also wondering more broadly what you find interesting about this in terms of what these brands' potential impact on the restaurant landscape might be. You wrote in the piece that Cloud Kitchens is poised to redefine the middle-class dining experience as we know it. Yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> I flair for the dramatic there um, <laughs> on my part. But um, no, I think, I guess what I was really concerned about was the fact that the high risk group here is the is the kind of middle class like restaurant space because I think that like fast food and then high end restaurants are not necessarily in the in the risk zone in terms of cloud kitchens. I think it's the middle tier kind of family owned restaurants that are kind of subject to upheaval by this so called like non traditional distribution channel food. You know, um, I guess I worry that this kind of platforming of reality in service of pure economic growth, which is what it's about, 
it encourages ubiquity in our experiences in, and in our food and culinary experiences in a way that I only can see as negative. And I think, Emily, in your piece, um, you spoke to someone who owns like a Jamaican fusion restaurant. Yeah, like the woman that I spoke to, um, Dawn Skeet from Jamit Bistro, she was saying that none of the offerings were a perfect fit for this kind of specialized Jamaican cuisine that she makes. And therefore, she had to start buying new ingredients and things. For example, barbecued meats she kept on bringing up. But then the only way to make that work, because there weren't always enough orders for that thing, was to incorporate the barbecued meats, which she normally wouldn't sell onto her menu. So yeah, sort of uh, adjusting her own menu to make this thing work. It seems like there's this way that platforming to this degree, and this sounds really serious, but it almost is like a type of like cultural erasure. Like it's this way that I can imagine that restaurants that have for a long time honored particular you know, regional cuisines or traditions of cooking, methods of cooking, particular ingredients, begin to slowly switch out those modes in order to accommodate the increased demands from these kinds of services. Yeah, I, th- I think you point to this in your story, this idea of if it's a Thai restaurant, for example, it implies a definition of what Thai food is that may not encompass, you know, the specifics of that Thai restaurant and the specific cultural origins of the, the people who started it. There is this way that the virtual brands create a kind of like generic, like cultural cuisine, um, because they kind of flatten the nuance or specificity of having like various restaurants with various histories making particularities of of regional cuisines right and so instead it becomes like a generic asian dish you know like uh, in order to service the most people in order to be accessible and appealing to the broadest kind of swath of people Um, and i think that that is is really worrying Let's talk more about how this is going to affect producers of this food, like the restaurateurs who are renting these spaces, the restaurants that are using the virtual brands, and even like the delivery drivers who are delivering this food. So I guess one of the things I want to kind of point out about this, I think, is that the restauranteurs or the restaurant owners, right, who own brick and mortar spaces, for example, who are being invited by outfits like Future Foods or Cloud Kitchens um, to partner with them and to kind of host these virtual platforms inside of their kitchens. Um, you know, the restauranteurs are doing it out of a need, right? And, and particularly right now in the pandemic, right? We see this need that brick and mortar costs are so high, right? That restauranteurs are forced to participate in these kinds of strategies that like really prioritize their growth um, just so they can like stay afloat and hold on. And you know, that's understandable. That makes a lot of sense. And the thing is, is that as a society, it's like when we engineer these scenarios where people have to prioritize like sales over all other components of the experience, 
I mean, we're basically encouraging this sort of like financialization of culture. And I think that it's really acute in Los Angeles, this idea of like engineered precarity. I mean, if you look at Travis Kalanick as, you know, a, a major kind of player in this field and you think about the kinds of disruptions that he wrought with Uber and then now think about him intervening in the restaurant scene in this way, his company goes out and sort of like buys up property at immense prices in Los Angeles, buys up real estate in order to turn them into these cloud kitchens. And the real estate market in LA is like so obscene already. And then you see that people that already are owning brick and mortar restaurants cannot afford to pay the rent to keep those places open. And then his business comes in and asks to run a virtual restaurant out of their kitchen. So you see the ways here that actually the market force is kind of engineered by the people who ultimately probably will end up profiting off it the most, which is the people like Kalanak. Something that I read was a lot of the buildings are also in opportunity zones right. across the country, meaning that you know they're getting tax incentives to purchase these buildings. Yeah, absolutely. That's the thing. So we talk about market forces, but like the market forces are driven you know, by people and there's people like Kalanak and Bezos and you know, LA politicians and all of this stuff. But it, to me, it seems that the current restaurant owners are in a position where they kind of increasingly have to rely on these so-called innovative like technologies or platforms or services in order to stay afloat. But at the same time, once they buy into these, they're sacrificing huge elements of their business in terms of their control of what they make, cook, sell, and to whom. Yeah, you actually, you draw an interesting parallel in the piece between these kind of brands and the city of LA, like kind of as a whole, as a concept, especially at this cultural moment. What do you see as the two having in common? In the piece, you talk a little bit about this theme of creating something out of nothing, of style over substance, and how that is sort of likened to the spirit of Los Angeles. I mean, I think that like LA is just, it's very comfortable with fabricated realities and with media constructions. And, you know, one of our major exports as a city is, is stories. So Hollywood does really well. I think it is this city in which you're driving around, you see people just building these huge sets and something happens and then it's deconstructed again all in a day. There's this way that it seems easy here to construct and deconstruct without too much awareness of what you are impeding on or like papering over. And I also think that in relation to the cloud kitchens and sort of the delivery service in general, that we have like a vast gig economy network here rooted in transportation and delivery because it's such a car centric city. And so, I mean, LA is not the only place this is happening, right? It's like virtual kitchens, cloud kitchens are, you know, happening in Europe and in, and Emma, your piece is in situated in North Carolina. Um, but there is something about a kind of like Los Angeles mentality that speaks to me when I when I see these brands. And when I look at Ryan Haskins, the world famous designer to the stars, for example, you know, I have no idea if Ryan Haskins is from LA or not, but I he seems to be working here now. And a lot of his design work for future foods and, and for some of these virtual restaurants is so bound to his understanding of Los Angeles. Like a lot of his design work seems to kind of 
provocate his relationship to Los Angeles, you know? And I think in the piece I talked about the nothing that branding conceals, but I guess it also just feels like we live in in a moment where we have these unrelenting encounters with mediocrity that are just cloaked in aesthetics. It's like sometimes the product feels like an afterthought because the branding and messaging is so overt and seems so designed to communicate that I want this thing, even though I don't really even care what the thing itself is. Emily, you talked about the virtual brands as skins in your article, which really resonated with me. Yeah, and and this disjunct between the product and the thing that is being advertised. And in the specific case of the cluster of brands from Future Foods that I was looking at, what was striking was that unlike most other virtual brand companies that I've heard about or looked into, they don't have any actual like apparent quality control measures. Right. There are competitors like Next Bite was one that I use as an example where, you know, it is a brand in the more traditional sense. They really give you training, specific instructions on how to cook this item. The CEO has been known to say, oh, let's send, we're going to send secret shoppers your way, or we might. And they really care about the actual product. And what was striking with this was that it seems the quality control of the product is just down to uh, ratings, like consumer reviews, how many stars you get, if there are a lot of bad reviews, or just are you moving product out of the door? Right. Which, yeah, that's the thing that I found really um, fascinating about it. And scary. And it's also, there's this kind of like uh, sense of impermanence about it. I think it also is kind of an LA thing, but there's this sense that because the virtual brand like it doesn't really exist beyond its own aesthetic formation you know like as soon as it gets too many bad reviews on Yelp it can just dissolve and become a different virtual brand right and so there's never any way for that brand to take accountability because it just transforms into something else it can shapeshift into the next novelty. I came to this maybe thinking a bit more about the the restaurants than the consumer experience but I thought that a striking thing was how that consumer experience and the restaurant's experience interacts where because there is this lack of authenticity, quote unquote, in what is behind the image or there's like a disjunct between the image and the thing that it is meant to represent, it could set restaurants up for this situation where they are coming off to the consumer as you know, being deceitful on some level. One guy in Nashville said like that the fucking good pizza looked like it was opened by a bunch of guys from Brooklyn who had moved to Nashville and were gentrifying it. And like, you think that's what you're getting, but then you get something else. And then the anger gets directed to the restaurant. And there is like questions about what is the restaurant doing when in reality, the restaurant has just spoken to some people who are from the tech world who have said, we can help you during this really difficult time. I mean, you're touching on a really important point is that the whole operation is almost devised to protect the people who should be taking accountability for when things go wrong. And they are protected by these layers of concealment. Like they're not visible. We don't know who they are. They're not trackable. They're hard to find. One thing I found interesting as we were doing the research 
the Bakersfield research was the way that we noticed delivery drivers beginning to sort of advocate for the restaurant consumers. Um, because often the, there was often very chaotic at uh, these kitchen hubs where there's like a ton of delivery drivers picking up foods all at the same time. It was really kind of disorganized. Um, and oftentimes the drivers would be stranded for like an hour waiting for food to come out, during which time they're losing money. And then the consumer gets the food and it's cold and you know, bad quality and they're angry. They know it's not the delivery driver's fault, right? They trace it back then to the only point of reference they have, which is this virtual brand, which oftentimes then doesn't actually have any face to it. And so it was interesting to start to see, once I managed to kind of talk to some delivery drivers and start to kind of be around the spaces a bit more, to see the delivery drivers start to protest what was happening a little bit, even though ultimately you know, they want to keep driving because that's how they're earning their income. And so there's all these things that are like interconnected, you know, yeah, and, and it's really important to not minimize the role in delivery platforms themselves in bringing about this environment where something like this is not only possible but necessary. Because if restaurants are trying to operate and survive in an economy where these huge fees are being taken off of every order, survival is increasingly dependent, especially during a pandemic, on getting as many orders through the door as possible. And drivers themselves are also, they're existing in that same, a similar or an adjacent conundrum. Absolutely. The, the precarity is real for, for many of the players in this and that it's not real for like Travis Kalanak, right? Who's not in a precarious position. And yet he is largely unaccountable because, because he's kind of hidden in all of this. And I'm, I'm only signaling him out because he's, you know, the person that I've found in my research but I, you know I know he's not the only like player in this right there's it's a big kind of patchwork certainly like a good mascot for what's going on though the strong parallels to what happened with you know uber and ride sharing right I just think like a campaign of awareness is really important because it is so difficult to understand what's actually going on the other point I wanted to make about it which was you know I grew up in LA born and raised here and there's kind of always been two LAs in my mind. There's, there is the one of that style over substance, creating something out of nothing theme that is very much dominated the city in Hollywood. And like you said, this is a city that does nothing if not generate stories. But then of course the irony here is that this is also such an incredibly culturally rich and diverse city, especially, you know, when it comes to food, you talk about food in LA, you were talking about international culture in LA and it's just ironic to me that that is also getting steamrolled by that other very kind of LA ethos here when it comes to what you were talking about as far as cultural erasure. Yeah, no, that's spot on. And and it, earlier, I think, Emily, you were talking about the Jamaican fusion restaurant. And, you know, I was thinking how often it occurs with design, specifically in the field of design, that the people who are designing, right, uh, the designers are often very out of touch with the particular needs actually of communities, right? You have these ways that the design doesn't fit the content as it exists. And so in this case, you have the design of these virtual restaurants. And I mean, design is in the sort of like structural, like systems design of the, of the organization itself, of future foods. 
And her restaurant doesn't fit into that. It, it, it can't be accommodated by that structure because that structure was not designed with a Jamaican fusion restaurant in mind, right? And so mm-hmm. you end up people having to kind of contort themselves to fit into the the vision of the designer, which tends often to be, you know, particular types of people over and over again. And it reinforces the same kinds of like genericisms. And, you know, when we talk about other narratives in LA and the rich history of immigrant owned businesses in LA and how food and the dining experience and the culinary experience is such a big part of understanding one's culture and understanding other people's cultures. And it seems to me just extremely problematic to think of a world in which a bunch of like tech guys are pushing kind of obnoxious like uh, cultural stereotypes into the food market. Um, what I will say now that it occurs to me about the lady from Jamet Bistro, the Jamaican fusion restaurant, is she did tell me after the story came out that her restaurant won a DoorDash Main Street Strong Accelerator Program grant or something. And I looked it up and it's an endeavor specifically to support BIPOC and women-owned businesses, you know, provide them with resources. And I'm like, that's what we should be seeing. Yes, exactly. I mean, we're at a moment where there's like imminent like ecological crisis. There are like so many good conversations about like sort of regarding like global and local food systems and conversations that really center like care and you know reciprocity and like diversity and honesty and transparency and accountability and all these things and it's you know I'm not really seeing any of those addressed in the in the cloud kitchens business model. I think there are people in the overall space that are definitely thinking about it in much more restaurant and consumer friendly ways. But this is like sort of the most like Anne Randian version of what it could look like. I'm saying that because he, I think that he's a fan of Anne Rand. Oh, I but, bet, I bet he is. And also, as a note, as you rightly point out in the piece, there is a sort of cringe edgelord aspect to some of the names, some brands or menu copy that shows a distinct lack of cultural sensitivity. Like Send Nudes, which is a generic Asian noodle concept that has some really offensive innuendo in the menu. I wonder what is the target consumer here? I mean, that's what you have to imagine when you read the copy for Send Nudes. I mean, the menu copy is, yeah, it's dreadful. And you, you know, you read it and you do just think like, God, like who's coming up with this? You know, and I'm trying really hard not to sort of like generalize like the audience for this food, because I, I think that as a culture right now, we are being trained to kind of respond to novelty wherever we can find it, particularly in pandemic life, where everything feels, you know, at once kind of unstable and yet extremely monotonous. There's this sort of way that I think attention grabbing names, like what the fuck is a quesarito? I guess I will generalize here. I do think it probably is like mostly like younger people to whom that kind of language signals something kind of like fun and, you know, it's not taking itself too seriously. There's maybe like some kind of irony in there. I mean, that has to be the target audience because who else, you know? Yeah, it strikes me as like generational lexiconical dog whistling. 
And then you said in your piece, Emma, you, you mentioned and I th- uh, combinations, like taking random combinations of elements. And it made me think, have you read the Umami Theory of Value? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I have. Yeah. The Umami Theory of Value is this memo by the brand consultancy nemesis. One of the founders, Emily Siegel, wrote a cool book recently, but it, it talks about how the experience economy rests on eternal generation of, you know, random combinations of different signifiers that create a sort of like frisson or, you know, moment of interest in, in the consumer. And a savoriness, an aesthetic savoriness. An aesthetic savoriness that can be produced by, you know, just sort of in the way the internet works. You see it also in articles that people who work for, you know, youth media companies um, might be encouraged to write where it's like, oh, well, it's this combined with this. I love that memo. And I I do wonder, again, you know, I talked earlier about the sort of like impermanence generally of these sorts of brands, but I also wonder whether the names are so, you know, of a particular moment that they're not, you know, they're really not assuming that they're going to last very long. You know, like it's almost like the name is so kind of trashy and throwaway that it it almost it's ready to expire as soon as soon as it's um, launched and I think that's like another part of of what I find like difficult about this is this kind of like throwaway relationship to all of these things these experiences um, that pass in and out of our lives very fast you know it almost feels like there's kind of like a parallel momentum to the meme cycle and social media Sort of on that note, how does this strange microcosm of virtual restaurant brands square with other trends you're seeing in visual culture and like marketing in general? Do you do you I'm sure you will get targeted on Instagram by like a ton of, you know, just these weird ads. And there's this trend I'm noticing, which is these kind of like passive aggressive slogans that I think have a kind of relationship to some of the the names um, of these virtual kitchens. And I you know, like, the, do you ever get the Buffy mattress? I always get targeted with this mattress. <laughs> no, but I bet I will now that you've said it. Well, look forward to the Buffy ads. But I don't know, there's this way that they always kind of make you feel a little bit, like, bad about yourself or something. Like, you would, you, well, you want to stay in bed all day? Like, I don't know, there's just something weird about them. There's this mm-hmm. weird, like, uh, kind of personable kind of, like, exchange with these very generic ads that I find strange and weird and unsettling and and seems also to be increasing there's also I think like I live in Highland Highland Park in LA and I was walking the other day and noticed this tiny like coffee shop that it's not even really a coffee shop it's like a coffee window that has emerged on my street and I had not noticed it before so I like looked it up on Instagram and it literally says like we make coffee but like not really like we we really just sell like products and like Mm -hmm we make coffee too. I don't know. It's like using the coffee as like a ruse, but really they sell like leisure wear. I don't know, like t-shirts and like mm. sports caps and stuff. You're not talking about blue bottle coffee, are you? No, uh, this one's called... I feel, I feel like blue bottle definitely does that. I can't stand them. Right. It's But this is called no free coffee. No free coffee. It seems to be like a pop-up that moves around Los Angeles selling branded items under the brand no free coffee. And then the coffee is like the giveaway, like attraction commodity item to get you to buy 
the branded merchandise for the coffee. It's like weird. It's like everything's getting kind of spliced and spliced up and vertigo just thinking about it. <laughs> just to go back to the sort of like cloud kitchen thing for a second. Like one of the things I find like what what a worrying trend, like I guess in general, is is that the brands like the virtual kitchen brands like send nudes etc this sounds a little bit conspiracy theory okay but but hear me out that they might actually not be the main goal of the endeavor for cloud kitchens and that actually the software that otter software that they've developed right that actually mm-hmm. that is really what we should probably be like super concerned it's a way for the company to just sort of data surveil us and then this software that's owned by Cloud kitchens like monitors and tracks our consumer data in terms of dining. I, I guess speculatively speaking, I'm like imagining this moment where we move from predictive analysis through to like prescriptive engagement. So what would happen if, for instance, you know, they flood the delivery apps with sushi on a Tuesday afternoon? Be- you know, there are these ways that it can suddenly begin to like shape our habits in I think more extreme ways and like that to me is something that I'm really conscious of and I think that's already happening on a level where you know certain delivery services I think I wrote that about this in the piece but like certain delivery services have worked with restaurants to create their own virtual brands often in response to their data on customer demand so yeah That'll be very interesting to see, like how a food version of what happens on Twitter, right. where how data collected on our behavior is then used to like sell this sort of hive mind consciousness back to us. Back, back to us. I think that's exactly like yeah, where where it's heading, and I think that Cloud Kitchen's trademark is is going to be a big proponent and player of that. Emma Kemp, writer, artist, and professor at Otis College of Art and Design. Thank you so much for this conversation. It's been a blast, however dystopian. Thank you so much for having me, Andrea and Emily. I appreciate it. Look forward to talking in the future. That's it for our show. Today's episode of The Culture Journalist was produced and edited by Emily Friedlander and me, Andrea Domaik. Our theme music was composed by Mark Donica. To check out both Emma and Emily's stories, and to get more info, head to our Substack. That's theculturejournalist.substack.com. And be sure to leave us a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts to help support independent journalism.